0: 2009, November 23rd, today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 39, The Drake Equation. Right, I thought I'd start today off a little different. Let's do a little thought experiment before we go. So this is sort of an audience participation thing, and to illustrate how today's topic works. Here's my question. First first off, how many people are asleep right now? Not the person in the back, but in the world. How many how do you go about estimating how many people are asleep? Where do we start? What's my initial input? And so sleep is gonna be what? What do I start with? What's the most basic number I gotta start with if I want to know the number of people sleep? Yes, sir. The number of hours that people sleep actually. That's pretty good, but I need something even more fundamental than that, yeah. No, people. Number of people in the world. The world's population. So the number of people. Anyone know what that number is right now? Sure. Like it's actually six point eight billion. Okay. So that's everybody. Now, person asked the next question: How often do, how long do people, how many fraction of people are asleep? Right. So certain fraction of these people are awake. Other fraction are asleep. How do we figure that out? You suggested the idea of how long you sleep. What is that number typically? Not for a college student. Sorry, about eight hours. All right, but what good does that do me? What's the other number I need? Twenty-four hours in a day. So I need to multiply this by a number we'll call FS, which is the number of people that are asleep, and that can be estimated as approximately eight over twenty-four, which is about one third. Of course, it's not a perfect number, right? Because people are not evenly distributed around the Earth. If it's nighttime in the South Pacific, that's a small fraction of the population. If it's nighttime over Asia, it's a bigger fraction of the population. But it serves as an average. So I can run these numbers through, and I get that the number of people asleep is roughly a third of 6.8 billion. Just to round up, why not? 2.3 billion people, all right? How many of those people who are sleeping are female, women and girls? What's an obvious answer for that? Right, it's about half. So we'll call it the F sub F, the fraction of females. fraction of females is about 0.5. So now we've got a number which is looking like, well, we'll call it 2.3 billion people. And now we've got about half that, so it's about 1.2 billion people are asleep. We'll give a slight edge to the fact there are a few more females than males in the population. Those are pretty secure numbers. Now I can get a little crazier with this. Okay, What I might ask is a question like, maybe add an extra detail, like how many of those uh, females who are sleeping right now are wearing pajamas? OK, so what's the fraction? I would multiply by another number, which is the fraction of, of females in the world who wear pajamas. Now I want to know how many of them are wearing pink pajamas. So I multiply by another fraction, the fracture of pink pajamas. And if I wanted to know the fraction of wearing pink flannel pajamas, I would multiply by a fraction, which is pink flannel. flannel. And I could play this game on and on. But you'll notice that the basic answer, we're doing an order of magnitude estimation. Up to this point, the first couple of terms is pretty secure. We have a pretty good idea how many people are in the world. Notice I've taken a single number, even though people are constantly being born and dying. We're just going to take this number as sort of an average in flux. Fraction sleeping, I made some assumption about how many hours you get to sleep and how many hours there are in a day. So that was straightforward to estimate. Fraction of the population that's female versus male, but flip a coin. It's about half 50-50. But not exactly, and it depends upon where you are on the planet. But if I started now getting into stuff like fraction of women who wear pajamas, that might be a more difficult question, because what does it mean to wear pajamas? Maybe cu- uh, culturally dependent. Pink may not be a color in a lot of places, and what does flannel mean, and how do I get these numbers? In principle, I could get these numbers, but as I add more and more of these onto the list, the number becomes more and more speculative, but I could come up with a number. I could find out after a little bit of an exercise that, in fact, at this very, at any given instant, there could be yeah, round numbers, something like you know, a few hundred million women who are sleeping right now wearing pink flannel pajamas. That's an example of the kind of calculation that's represented by today's question, the so-called Drake Equation. We're going to ask a different type of question now, not how many people are wearing pink pajamas while they sleep, but more the question is, how many civilizations, how much intelligent communicating life is there within the Milky Way galaxy? To do this, we have to ask a couple of questions. The first of all is, what do we mean by intelligence? How do we define (coughs) intelligent life for the purposes of this particular exercise? say a little bit about that at the start. We're going to then go through a calculation which is very much like the one we sketched out here on the blackboard, something known as the Drake Equation. The Drake Equation is a way to estimate the number of advanced communicating civilizations throughout our Milky Way galaxy. And then probably by extension you could probably send it out to other galaxies, but let's just stay local we're going to see that the inputs to the Drake Equation, which is going to look an awful lot like what I've driven up there, are going to have a combination of observational inputs, things we can go out and measure and know, like measuring the population of the Earth. And then there are going to be a series of inputs which are far more conjectural, that we don't have any obvious way to measure right away. And that, it turns out, unfortunately, is going to be the thing that's really going to hinge on the outcome of the Drake Equation and its utility, is not the observational inputs but how much faith we want to put in these more conjectural items, and we'll talk a little bit about those. But the bottom line we're going to be seeking is that even optimistic estimates where we hedge our bets in the fractions. We assume that the World Pajama Board has done its job and that everyone wears pajamas and everyone wears flannel pajamas and the pink uh, dye lobby has won out. I can get an optimistic upper limit there. Same true here. I'm going to hedge all of my pieces here, to try to understand what's the most number of intelligent civilizations that might be communicating in the galaxy, and the answer is going to be they're pretty rare by this estimation. We'll talk a little bit about the problems with this as we go on, but that's basically today what we're going into. So, is there intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? That's the question we really all want to know. When I go to a party and people find out I'm an astronomer they immediately asked me two questions. Do I know anything about black holes, and do I believe whether there's life on other worlds? And they usually don't mean microbiological life living around hot vents under ice caps. They really do mean, you know, E.T. So is there intelligent life elsewhere in the universe? To answer this question scientifically, we have to basically define what we're going to mean by intelligent life. And, of course, we're going to take a somewhat uh, biased point of view because we only know of one such ourselves, we think, we are certainly, we imagine them, culturally in science fiction and other writings, as a highly advanced technological civilization. Those that possess the ability to manipulate electronics, the atom, and so forth. We imagine that we're dealing with a civilization which is capable of communicating across interstellar distances using, we think, electromagnetic radiation. Light, if you will, in various forms. Radio, optical, whatever. We'd like to think, in fact, some of our, a lot of the science fiction writing in our society is predicated by the possibility that some of them are in fact capable of interstellar travel by way of spacecraft. We'll say more about that on a different day. But it's certainly one of the characteristics we often think of when you think of life on other worlds, meaning ET's ready to phone home. And that such life is not only interested in finding us, but also communicating with us, and communicating with other intelligent species. That they're going out and seeking out strange new worlds to. Put in my gratuitous Star Trek reference for the week. In other words, life that imagines life on other worlds like we imagine it. Now, do we qualify as intelligent life? Well, you got to wonder sometimes. <laughs> okay, now I've my contractual obligation to crack on that school up north. Um, let's really look at the hard numbers about whether there's intelligent life anywhere on the planet, much less north of here. We've only had radio communication technology for about 100 years. Marconi's invention was only about 100 years old. We've only been engaged in short-duration manned spaceflight for 50 years, and we've not gotten anywhere further than the backside of the moon. The furthest people ever to go from the Earth were, in fact, I believe the Apollo 13 astronauts as they swung around the backside of the moon. We've sent robotic spacecraft out through our solar system, but we've only gotten just to the very edge of our solar system. We're about to have those spacecraft, just a handful, cross over into interstellar space about now. About now. hasn't gotten a lot of hoopla unless you read the right literature, but it's only now that we're doing it. And we may or may not yet have or have sufficiently sensitive radio technology to either receive signals from other civilizations also using radio, or to transmit them ourselves. So in reality, there's about a hundred light-year bubble around us that contains the electromagnetic noise of that civiliz- advanced technological civilization we call humanity. Exceptions, of course, noted. So it's a small number right away. And we're pretty much just at the beginning of that. So it's interesting that we start immediately turning around and imagining this. Now why we don't just sort of stop and call it a class is because, The sheer numbers that we're dealing with start arguing that it's not a crazy proposition. Again, a number we've slung around many times, but here it is again. There are about 200 billion galaxies in the visible portion of the universe. As we learned earlier, a typical galaxy contains around 100 billion stars. The Milky Way contains about 200 billion or so. It's hard to do the count. Maybe 100 billion of which are actually interesting from the point of view of potential harbors of life. So if you have 200 billion galaxies with about 100 billion stars each, that comes to a total of 2 times 10 to the 22 stars. That's 20 billion trillion stars. Now if you take this huge number and say that the chance that life arises is only 1 in 1 trillion, 1 in 1 part in 10 to the 12, that leads 2 times 10 to the 10 possible places for life to arise. 20 billion possible stars. That harbor advanced technological civilizations using these toss-off numbers throughout the entire visible universe. That's a huge number. That's more than tw- um, almost three times, to- more three times, the Earth's population. That's a one inhabitable, intelligent, possible civilization for every single man, woman, and child on the surface of the Earth, three times over. So this tells us that the odds, while they're long, are not crazy. The number isn't zero. The number, in fact, could be quite large. And I've just given a wave my hands and tap my toes one in a trillion chance. No one in this room would take a one in a trillion bet on almost anything. But maybe we can take a one in a trillion, even if we took a one in a trillion bet, it's the sheer number of stars that allows us to approach this question sensibly. It says we Basically what it says is not that we know for sure that there are that many civilizations out there, it means the numbers are such that we have to take the question seriously. And that's what this, this whole idea that we're going to be discussing over the next couple of days of intelligent life is not an exercise in science fiction. It's an exercise in taking a question seriously and approaching it from a scientific rather than a make-stuff-up approach. So let's look at one of the appro- Oh, for God's sake. Thank you, PowerPoint. Okay, those are supposed to be multiply signs. I don't know why it did that. It didn't do that this morning on my other computer, and your notes probably show the time signs, right? Those of you who have notes? Because my notes here, printed right off this lectures have time signs. Very weird. Okay, the evil empires, namely Microsoft strikes again. Okay, the Drake equation is an attempt to get at understanding what these numbers are here. It basically tries to estimate the number of advanced communicating civilizations within our own Milky Way galaxy. The Drake Equation has a lot to recommend it and a lot to complain about. It's called the Drake Equation because it was invented in the early 1960s before a very famous meeting in Green Bank, West Virginia, the large radio telescope facility there, by a young astronomer named Frank Drake. Frank went on to become the dean of the School at uh, UC Santa Cruz where I got my PhD, although he arrived just after I, I got there and has since become a professor emeritus at UC Santa Cruz, still doing work. One of the real pioneers in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The Drake equation looks a little bit like the equation we tried to work through for a number of women wearing pink pajamas who are asleep in the world. It has that the number of advanced technologically communicating civilizations is equal to the rate of star formation in our galaxy, how many stars per year are being formed, times the fraction of stars that have planets, times the fraction of planetary systems that contain an Earth-like planet in its habitable zone, times the fraction of those planets that have life, times the fraction of those planets that had intelligent life develop, times the fraction of that intelligent life that has the com- sufficient communication technology to make its presence known with <laughs> electromagnetic radiation. Since we've got something that's per year, we have to multiply by one more time scale, which is L, which is the lifetime of an advanced civilization years. That's this is a fairly complicated-looking equation. We're going to basically walk our way through each of the steps and try to see what insights it can actually deliver to us. So this is it. This is the Drake equation. It's a very simple thing, and we're going to spend the rest of the hour talking about it. I'll point out this is probably one of the most mathematical lectures you'll see, but it's all pure arithmetic. It's just basically numbers, just like our little exercise before class. So let's start with the first few terms. The reason why some of those terms were bunched up is just like in my example earlier, these are things we know. Our star is the rate of star formation per year known from extensive observations. We can go out and look for young stars forming in our own galaxy. We can observe galaxies like the Milky Way in terms of size and composition, and measure the rate at which new stars are being formed there. It's actually a very straightforward observation. It's one I've done myself on different galaxies. Turns out that you can even make a crude estimate, even if you were didn't have detailed observations of places where young stars are being formed today, like the Eagle Nebula here on the right on the screen, is the rate of star formation is simply to take the number of stars in the galaxy and divide by the age of the galaxy. So if I take a couple of numbers, these aren't necessarily the ones I'll use all the way through. There are around 100 billion stars of the kinds I care about in the Milky Way that are going to be possible places for life, meaning they're going to be long-lived, stable, hydrogen-burning stars. The Milky Way has been around for between 10 and 13 billion years, depending upon how you do the math. It's really 10 billion years for the disk, but I'm going to use the 13-billion-year number. And if I divide 100 billion by 13 billion years, I get a rate of star formation to get there. On average, of about 7 stars need to be made per year. Of, of the sorts we're interested in. That actually sounds like a pretty crude estimate, but in fact, if you go out and measure it, but now expand it to stars of all type, the present-day star formation rate in the galaxy is estimated to be to be between 5 and 9 stars per year. So it's not a bad number, all, all told. But it has one advantage to us. I can take this R star here, notice it has the number of stars, just like we started our problem with the number of people in the world. So I can slightly rewrite the Drake equation for our purposes by substituting in r star is about equal to the number of stars divided by the age of the Milky Way. And I end up with n star times the chain of fractions, and now multiplied by something which looks like a time over a time. Remember, we did hours per day for sleeping. Well, there's lifetime of a civilization divided by age of the galaxy. So by doing this little substitution, I've recast the Drake equation just a little bit in the same way as we tried to do our our on-the-board estimate of the number of women who are asleep right now wearing pink flannel pajamas. So now we'll follow through the logic and see where we get, how do we fill in the rest of the numbers. I'll say right now that putting the Drake equation down this way is the first three terms in the Drake equation. The number of stars in the galaxy, the fraction with planets, and the number that possess Earths are in principle observable quantities. We know that number from observation. We've been getting that number the last few years from finding extrasolar planet systems. We're narrowing down on the number of Earths because we're getting to the point where we're just about able to technologically find Earths. So one of the things we'll do is we'll fill in those numbers. And then I'll jump down here and say, yeah, we have a pretty good idea of the age of the galaxy, too. So we know those numbers. The fraction with life, the fraction with intelligent life, the fraction with intelligent life that cares to or can communicate with us and the lifetime of communicating civilizations are purely speculative, We don't know how to calculate them. We don't know how to estimate them. We don't know how to measure them, but that's not going to stop us. So let's start with the first of those, and we're going to go from left to right through the equation. The first piece, the fraction of stars that have planetary systems, is becoming known. We now know, as I've said many times before, there are 405 planets, around 343 stars. The present observed fraction of stars with planets is about 15%. Numbers vary between 10% and 20%. But 15% seems to be a convergent number. And here's an example. For example, over here on the right, H.R. 8799. These are obviously giant Jupiter-sized planets orbiting around the center of this star, and they're fairly far out. This is a beautiful direct image of one of the first direct imaging detected planetary systems. The problem is, of course, this 15% number only refers to gas giants, to giant planets, either gas giants or ice giants we still don't know what the rocky planet fraction is. We know what the overall planetary system is, but we don't know how many rocky planets are in that system. And estimates vary. If we use our own solar system as a guide, there are roughly two times more rocky planets than there are gas giants, Jupiter's and Saturn, that these methods are are sensitive to. Okay, These methods are just becoming sensitive. They're not sensitive at all to Uranus and Neptunes in our orbit. Furthermore, the systems we've been finding are those where the big planets have migrated inwards, which would have tossed out the rocky planets. We've only found one system so far, because we were sensitive to it in microlensing, that is really a Jupiter-Saturn analog system. So it may be that the number is, in fact, quite larger. It's just that we're not getting um, able to, to get to the number yet. So I'm going to throw an optimistic number out. I'm going to say, well, it could be for rocky planets, because it's rocky planets we care about. This 15% is for gas giants. Rocky planets are more populous. They're smaller. It's easier to build them up, we think. So let's be optimistic and set the fraction of rocky planets that are of interest to us at 50% of all stars. That may be overly optimistic, or it may be able to as a way to leverage the possibility of multiple planets per star. But it's optimistic. It sets an upper bound. What about the number of Earths? In principle, the number of planetary systems that have an Earth-like planet in its habitable zone is still fundamentally unknown. We know of one, us. But we believe this number will soon be measurable. The Kepler mission, microlensing experiments, various transiting experiments are all basically on the hunt. And they will, I firmly think, within the next decade, increase this number from zero to many. And we'll actually be able to make a a reasonable assay of what this is. So if there is a planetary system, what fraction of those planetary systems have an Earth-like planet in the right place? We don't know now. It depends upon the detailed distribution of the rocky planets around the stars, but we're not there yet observationally. So why don't we simply, instead of trying to guess this number, instead what I'm going to do is something which might be considered overly optimistic as a guess. I'm going to set the number NE to 1 not because I believe every planetary system has a habitable Earth in it, but because this sets an upper bound. It can't be any more than that out there. So this gives me basically the maximal number that is allowed by the current observations of planetary systems. So I have number of stars in the galaxy divided by the age of the galaxy multiplied by the fraction of stars with planets, which I'll set to an optimistic 50% and the number of those systems that have earths to an optimistic one. The numbers can only go down from here. That's why I decided to pick the upper limit. It seems the safest way to go. I can just make zero, and then we can make, be done with the lecture. Now we get into the conjectural stuff, and this is where the Drake equation comes in for a lot of its heaviest criticism, all of it deserved. We don't even know how to begin to estimate these numbers, but we can look for a little bit of guidance from our own history. Fl, f sub F-sub-L, basically is the fraction of those Earth-like planets that have life on them. We just don't know. We know there's one, and it's us. Now, we can get a little bit of guidance as to how this should work by our own studies of the history of the Earth. We spent a little time on this a few weeks ago. And, of course, there is the the four geologic eons, the Hadean, Archean, Proterozoic, and Phanerozoic eons. And, of course, one of the lessons that we've learned is that all the evidence seems to suggest now from stromatolites, and maybe from the carbon isotope um, evidence, that life arose very rapidly on this planet as soon as the conditions allowed it to occur. As soon as conditions were no longer lethal to life in terms of sterilizing impacts, life arose probably within about 100 or 200 million years of the end of heavy bombardment. That's the earliest things we can see that are organized biological metabolic processes going on on the planet. From there, it took an awfully long time to get up to first eukaryotes, then into multicellular life, and then into full-fledged animals and people, but it was very quickly. Basically, life got going, geologically speaking, as soon as it was possible. And so another way to leverage this conversation is to basically make a very optimistic guess again and say that if the conditions are right and we are in a non-lethal bombardment situation, we're not around some OB star that's producing ultraviolet radiation, we're not in a bad UV light radiation environment, that if life gets a chance, it takes it. So if we get an Earth-like planet in its habitable zone and we calm the conditions down, if there's liquid water, there's going to be life. Basically, chemical organization is going to take over and evolution is going to take off. That's an obviously optimistic assumption, but again... It's not too crazy given the history of our own planet, which was a pretty nasty place, and yet life got going real fast. Of course, once it got going, it took its sweet time about becoming advanced. Which brings us to the second part, question. So once we've got the first conjecture, how many make life, let's be optimistic. Say it's one. The next number is f sub i, the fraction of life that is intelligent. This is even harder to guess at. We don't know if other intelligent species or intelligent potential species arose on the, on the Earth. We don't know, for example, that there wasn't an intelligent or quasi-intelligent species of dinosaur that didn't just happen to get whacked by the asteroid that knocked them all dead 65 million years ago. We just have zero evidence. All we know is that we are here and we are intelligent. Again, we have some clues, again, it's a very provincial view, from the history of Earth and Earth's life. First life arose about 3.8 billion years ago, at the end of the Hedian era, 100 million years or so after the end of heavy bombardment. Multicellular life didn't arise until 1.2 billion years ago. So there was about a 2.6 billion year hiatus where the world's life was dominated by single-celled simple creatures. Once multicellular life got going, it didn't explode, really, until almost a half a billion years ago at the beginning of the Cambrian period when there was a sudden explosion of biodiversity on the planet. We started seeing animals with complex body plants. It was due to a variety of factors. Conditions were right. There was oxygen. Oxygen allows complex metabolism. Maybe it was the evolution of predators and you suddenly started getting predator-prey kinds of uh, pre- evolutionary pressures on the system which led to rapid diversity. There's lots of ideas about this, but whatever happened 500 million years ago was when life finally got its ball rolling in complex life. But even that took nearly 100 million years before enough oxygen built up in the atmosphere to build up enough ozone to produce enough of a UV radiation shield that life could crawl out onto the land. First plants, and then many millions of years later, the first animals crawled up onto the land. And they could survive because they didn't get sunburned immediately by UV radiation. So in a four and a half billion year history, it took until 4.45 0.4, 4, billion years ago, 475 million years ago, for life to first emerge. Basically, 10, 90%, the first 90% of life on the earth was in the water. It's only been in the last 10%, it's crawled out of the ground. Of that after land colonization, Homo sapiens as an identifiable species are only about 100,000 years old in the fossil record. We recognize primates, anthropo... um, hominids, going back a couple million years, but recognizable modern human beings do not appear in the fossil record until 100,000 years ago. I was looking for a picture to illustrate this. And I I, I really couldn't resist this particular picture. This is from... um, Chavot pont darc its one of the uh, Paleolithic cave painting sites. It's estimated to be between 25 and 35,000 years old, depending upon whose age date you do. I love seeing the old cave paintings. You know, you can recognize all the animals and everything, but they're always sort of kind of sterile, sort of anonymous. People have sort of drawn these animals and hunts and stuff like that. But this picture and ones like it never never cease to just catch my breath because this is recognizably human and intelligent. It's a signature, in a way. It's it's a human hand imposed, stenciled, onto the wall of this cave. It's a person saying, this is me, I'm here. And it's 30,000 years old. And it's immediately recognizable to everybody in this room as a sign of intelligence. If you take those numbers, intelligence took about 100 million years for life to emerge, but 40 times longer at least for an intelligent species, namely us, to appear on the earth. So we don't know, is intelligence exceedingly rare, or does it just take time, it just takes a long time before whatever it is that leads to the evolution of an intelligent form of life for it to emerge. So we've gone through the entire history of the earth, and intelligent human beings are crammed into the last few minutes of the last day of the year. So it's extremely rare, but we're going to take a wild guess. And the wild guess, and this really is a wild guess, is that the fraction of life that becomes intelligent is about 10%. And that's saying that whatever the pressure of evolution is, no matter which way it pushes, development of intelligence, especially development of higher intelligence, gives such an advantage to that species that once it gets it, they become the dominant species on the planet. We're not numerically dominate, but no one would question that human beings are not the dominant species on this planet. We shape the planet. We can shape its history. We can even affect the history of its atmosphere, its oceans, and its land, for better or worse. So this is a wild guess. We don't know what this answer is. We have no idea. We could be, in fact, the only such intelligent species that's arisen even in our part of the universe, much less our galaxy. But this will give us a number to work with. Okay going from wild guesses to even wild, wilder stuff is, once you develop intelligence, what fraction of that intelligent life is actually capable of or even interested in communicating in any form? This is pure conjecture. Okay, We know we've done it ourselves, but the fact that we're capable of doing this relied on cultural aspects. It's nothing to do with biology, at least as near as we can tell requires a rise in science and technology, and that's a very, very recent cultural uh, development. It may provide an evolutionary advantage, but the time is too short to know. It may be a, an evolutionary disadvantage because it put tools in our hands which contain the seeds of our own annihilation. What science requires is an ability and, in fact, a willingness to try to make sense of the world and to <laughs> apply logic and principles to it physical principles. Once you begin to understand the world physically, you can begin to do things like manipulate electrons and manipulate atoms. If your view of the world is simply that of received knowledge, you will simply stay static. You won't go anywhere because you won't be compelled to be curious to know how something works because you already know the answers. So it requires basically a free-form sort of curiosity. We don't know what all the factors are that led to that. Why is it we got here? We don't know. We could all be in a static civilization that's way back in the Stone Ages and that we could be locked in the Middle Ages. Do right? you want to go out, know what the Dark Ages are like? Go out into rural Afghanistan or someplace like that where the Taliban wants to lock those people back into the Middle Ages. Human beings can get locked in those modes. We've been there for thousands of years. But for whatever reason, we've moved into a zone where we can use technology. So here we're going to make... <coughs> Not only a completely shameless optimistic guess, but a totally baseless one. I have no basis for this whatsoever, but I need a number to put in. And so I'm going to basically make the the bald statement that if you become intelligent and learn how to manipulate technology, you will immediately want to communicate with somebody. Your curiosity will not let you sit still until you know whether you're alone or not. And that's going to set now the number of communicating civilizations to one. Again... It's an upper bound. It can only go down from there. The final number, L, is the lifetime of an advanced, civilizing, c- communicating civilization. This is probably a very difficult number, and it is an exceedingly uncomfortable number to guess at, because now we're talking about us. Okay, The only example we have before us is us. At a lower bound, to set the smallest, shortest number it is, is, well, we've had radio communication technology for 100 years. And somehow, and I don't really know how, we came really close a couple of times, we managed to get through the Cold War without annihilating ourselves with nuclear weapons. So we made it at least 100 years. What's the upper bound? Next year, pandemic going to wipe us off the planet, an asteroid going to hit us, maybe 100 years from now, maybe that's the nuclear jihad or something, who knows? When is the habitable zone going to move past the Earth? When is the Earth no longer going to be habitable? We don't know that number. It could be between a half a billion years and three billion years in the future, which gives a very long scope for, human, for communicating civilizations to exist. That's way longer than life has existed on this planet on the surface. It's only been on the surface for 450 million years. So maybe it'll last for another half a billion years or so. Maybe it'll actually get a toehold. Maybe technology will let us even get around this limitation and we can hold out until the sun finally becomes so unstable that it's no longer a good home for us. That's five billion years from now. This turns out to be the driver. This one number, which we have no clue as to how to even begin to estimate because we don't even know what it is going to be for ourselves, is the one that actually determines the outcome of the Drake equation more than any other number that I've guessed at because every other number is between zero and one. This one's not. This could either be real short or really, really long. So we don't know how to set it, so I'm going to take an extremely conservative view and say they last at least as long as we have. So here's a shamelessly optimistic guess of putting all these pieces together. We have 100 billion stars in our galaxy which are capable of having stable planets. Half of those have planetary systems, Anything with a planetary system has an Earth on it, which got dropped off here somehow. The fraction of those with life, that's really weird, is approximately one. The fraction of life with intelligent life is a tenth. The fraction of intelligent life that is capable of communicating is 100%. They can last at least 100 years, because we've made it that far, and the galaxy is 100 billion years old. God, there it goes again. So we take those out. The number of intelligent civilizations is n times f times n times fl times fi times fc multiplied by the lifetime of a civilization divided by the age of the galaxy. What fraction of time does a civilization last compared to the lifetime of an entire galaxy? This allows you to sort of have the averaging now. The galaxy civilizations come and go. So we have 10 billion times a half times 1 times 1 times 10 times 1 times 100 years over 10 billion years. Do the math. You can see where I picked those numbers. It comes out to around 50 civilizations throughout our Milky Way galaxy on average. So this is a very, very highly optimistic number. It can only go down from here. If there are fewer Earths, the number will drop. If there are fewer Earths which are capable of harboring life, or if intelligence is far rarer than we think, or if communication just isn't an option for most intelligent species, the number will simply go down from there. So I've been shamelessly optimistic, And I've got one civilization for every member of this class who show up on most days with a few left over, meaning students, not civilizations. So what does this mean? Oh, my time signs work there. What the hell? if we take this fairly optimistic set of numbers, we have a very, very low density of civilizations throughout the galaxy, Okay. We can take the Milky Way galaxy, it's a disk of stars approximately 100,000 light years across, or 50,000 light years in radius, and about 1,000 light years thick. So I'll make the volume of the Milky Way be the simple disk, okay? The volume of a disk is pi times the radius squared, that's the surface area of the face here, multiplied by the height, so it's pi r squared times h. That's the volume of a disk of radius r and height thickness h. What's the density? Density is number per unit volume. Okay. So what is the density of civilizations? It's the number of such civilizations divided by the volume of the entire galaxy. So I'm going to make a simple estimate. I'm going to say they're you know, roughly evenly distributed through the galaxy. I put in 50,000 light years of radius and 1,000 light years of thickness. Do the numbers. 50 divided by pi times 50,000 light years squared. Now you know we're in trouble because I just raised 50,000 to the second power times another 1,000, crank the numbers, there is basically one civilization per 6.4 times... T- I'm sorry, there are 6.4 times 10 to the minus 12 civilizations per cubic light year. That's a really, really low density. Remember, the number of stars we saw was about four thousandths of a star per cubic light year. Right? There is 4 stars per 1,000 cubic light years. This basically gives me one six civilizations or uh, one two civilizations in round numbers per billion cubic tr- per trillion cubic light years. Well, but there's an awful lot of light years, cubic light years in a galaxy. This is where the leverage comes from. This is where the problem is, really comes down to. Is 50 sounds like an awfully big number. That's an awful lot of people to talk to, but the galaxy is really really big. Right, We're talking 50 out of 100 billion stars, which is an almost unimaginably large number unless you're an economist or, or, or track the national debt. So here we have basically a very low density. Let's look at that density from a different number. The low density means there's a very large distance on average between those civilizations. So if I took those 50 civilizations and I spread them evenly around the Milky Way galaxy... The mean distance to them can be computed It's basically by following this number. Here's the volume and one over the density, meaning how far I have to go at that density before I find one and then find out the distance associated with that. I let them be anywhere in the plane. So I ask distance and sort of just in the plane of the galaxy. It's as good an estimate as I got. The average distance between 50 civilizations spread evenly through the galaxy is 7,000 light years. 7,000 light years meaning if we communicate at the speed of light means a round trip conversation saying, "Hi, how are you?" "I'm fine," in whatever language it will take 14,000 years if we knew where to point the telescope. Yes sir. What is the advancements we made in like quantum entanglement? Quantum entanglement still works at the speed of light. Ultimately, state changes still propagate at the speed of light. You're still stuck with speed of light. In the end, it's how fast information travels through the universe. Two-way conversation will take you 14,000 years, which means your conversation better be pretty tightly packed in your first message heading out. And This, in fact, is a color representation of one of the first messages we beamed out blindly into the stars, more or less, from the Arecibo Radio Observatory by uh, Frank Drake and others in the 1960s. Okay? It contains within it a simple coding saying, this is how we're talking to you with a radio telescope, this is kind of what we look like, numbers, prime numbers, and so forth, fun stuff. We'll say a little bit more about that at a later time. So here lies the challenge. Even if we're being crazy optimistic in the numbers, we dial everything in our favor, What's really standing up against us so far, the numbers that really drive the Drake equation are first and foremost the sheer size of our galaxy, but balanced against that, that as near as we can tell, intelligent, communicating civilizations are at least short-lived. So there's at least this many, but it could be a lot more. If I could somehow imagine that technological civilizations could live for, for a billion years, then I could run the number up to very large numbers. But remember, the human species has only been around for 100,000 years. So let's say we had another 100,000 to go before something, asteroid hits us, right? Something's going to happen at some point. Nature is not terribly kind to, to, to planetary surfaces, as we've seen. I can run that number up, but only so much. So this kind of frames the question. It almost seems pessimistic, but it's optimistic as well, because it's not zero. So the Drake equation has its problems, and certainly not without its detractors, and I'll I'll actually count myself as among them. I think there's areas where the Drake equation could be either overly optimistic or perhaps not even optimistic at all, under-optimistic. The first thing should obviously be that what is driving our numbers is you multiply a bunch of things together that are all going to be between 0 and 1, the probability will be a reasonable-looking number between 0 and 1. So you're pretty much guaranteed to get a non-zero answer out of it just from the way it's being calculated. The other problem is is that those numbers that really matter, the ones that really drive the outcome, are purely conjectural. We don't even know how to begin to measure them, much less know know what to measure. We just don't even have a clue as to where to start. We have one example in front of us, therefore the probability of life on the Earth is 1, but by no means can we even estimate... How probable were we that we emerged? Are we a complete fluke, or would it be intelligent dinosaurs having this question in some kind of growling language right now? We don't know. The other thing, and I think this is a much more interesting objection. I mean, the usual grouchy objection is this is stupid baby statistics. It should not be treated as such a profound idea. It's really what comes down to the basic arguments here. And I've, I've seen various talks and speeches that have dumped on the Drake equation. You're right, it's not profound. It isn't. It's a fairly simple order of magnitude estimate. But the real difference is is that one of the underlying assumptions of the Drake equation is that the civilizations stay on the planets they were born in, and you get one at a time. What it doesn't account for is if interstellar colonization is possible, if life can go out and spread among the stars, then you have to fold another factor in which can be very strong, and that's population dynamics. Right? If I was going to be playing the Drake equation game, but playing it with evolutionary biology or even just simply population biology, I might be asking questions of, what's the probability that I'm going to get a finch with a certain state- shaped beak on this particular island in the Galapagos? Ignoring the fact that if those uh, finches can make their way from island to island and different f- forces can come to play in them, I bring into the multiplying effect of population dynamics which can be an exponential multiplying effect. So in fact, the Drake equation may not be not only sort of overly optimistic in some views, it may in fact be utterly pessimistic. Because if I can bring population dynamics into play, it's a whole new ballgame. So what's the point of spending this entire time talking about the Drake equation? Because it's a way of framing the question. It's a way of getting at where do we begin to ask the question, should we even be bothering to look? It's a starting point for discussing for what to look and how. And so the way I'm going to use it is as a framing question for the rest of the discussion that we're going to be having this week. Tomorrow we're going to go into talking about SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, based on a very simple premise. We don't know what the chances are from Drake-like equations as to what the probability is that we will successfully communicate with an extraterrestrial civilization. But we know for a dead certainty that if we do nothing, the chances are zero. The second lecture we'll have on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and we will have class on Wednesday before Thanksgiving, will be on this whole problem of the distance between civilizations as a barrier. How do we overcome? What are the problems of interstellar travel? And what are the aspects of interstellar colonization that might tip the Drake equation in an interesting direction? Finally, on next week and further lectures, we'll bring up things like the Fermi paradox, which is, okay, if there are lots of civilizations, where are they? Why haven't they visited yet? Or perhaps even look at stranger possibilities, the rare earth hypothesis, maybe we are the only ones in the galaxy, which is the opposite side of the Drake equation, or stranger forms of life that do not evolve or look or even appear like us. And that's going to bring us through the whole question, which is going to get more and more speculative and crazy to be sure, on the question of life in the universe, but we'll try to keep it grounded as a reasonable scientific set of questions. Any questions? Go on. Alright, good. In that case, I will see you all tomorrow. And...